This Dharma Talk is brought to you by the Chicago Zen Meditation Community. Learn about us and our teacher, Miyoshi Thompson, at zenchicago.org. We do have a lot of uh, you know, encounters with impermanence, but it shouldn't surprise us because, of course, every moment of every day we're encountering impermanence. This is one of the reasons that Buddha taught that non-self is such an important cornerstone of our understanding of the world. Because nothing is stable. Nothing is unchanging. Everything is always changing. And so it's really difficult to talk about any kind of permanent self or any kind of independent existence to anything because everything is changing according to conditions. And the sutras that we chant during service um, kind of remind us of that and help us deal with that. This, this one, the Daihi Shin Dharani, um, invokes a uh, spirit of great compassion. Uh, to help our, our friends who have passed away. Most, uh, most Monday evenings we chant the Heart Sutra, right? And the Heart Sutra is um, very important in talking to us about the wisdom of form and emptiness. Which is interesting. Uh, these are two great teachings. Uh, and there's the teaching of form, which is as if to say, things are just as they seem. That if it seems separate and individual, it is separate and individual. That's the world of form that we live in all the time. But the Heart Sutra also teaches about emptiness. And in this wisdom of emptiness, then things are not really separate or lasting. Everything is changing, and everything is connected to everything else. Each thing, each apparent thing, is only the coming together of all things in this moment. And if we look at our lives with eyes that see the emptiness of things, with eyes that see how everything is changing in response to conditions and everything is, is the temporary manifestation of the whole universe. If we look at our, our lives with those eyes, then really we, we see the world in each grain of sand. We see heaven in a wildflower. And in this teaching of emptiness, nothing is separate from anything. Which is another way of saying that nothing has a separate self. Buddha taught that there was no Atman. Atman was the concept of the time of there was a, I guess we would say a soul, an essence to each individual that survives, 
the death. It's reincarnated in another body. And is, is kind of a piece of the divine. The Buddha taught that there was nothing like that in human beings. That really what we would call a self is just a com temporary coming together of different elements. He kind of summarized it and said there are five elements that come together. There's form, there's feeling, the, the liking and disliking that arises all the time in the world. There's our perceptions, there's our intentions, and there's consciousness. And he called these five elements the five skandhas. Skanda is a, a Sanskrit word, and it means heap. It's like a bunch of things. Not even very organized, you know, just a heap of things. And so Buddha taught this. He said, uh, what we call a self is just five of these heaps that are all heaped together. Not, not really very permanent, not really very lasting, not even very structured. It's just a bunch of stuff, a bunch of experiences. And that's it, he said. That's what self is. And he taught that there was nothing substantial <coughs> in our experience. There's just experience, but nothing substantial in it. And we could say that, so, there's two truths. One is the truth of form. And we have to live in this truth every day, because if we didn't live with the uh, kind of assumption that if I reach for this nyoi, it'll be there, right? It's not going to change so, so rapidly as that I won't be able to grasp it. We have to live with that understanding that things are kind of the way they seem. But the other truth, the truth of emptiness, is the truth that, well, there's much more to everything than what it seems. That everything is really the whole of the universe coming together in this one moment, in this one place. So we have this truth of the relative, the way things normally seem to us, and what's called the truth of the absolute, the, the essential way everything is, which is um, that it's impermanent and that it's empty of a separate self. So we have these two truths, form and emptiness, and there's a, uh, there's a danger in appreciating this, because we might be tempted to create a duality out of these truths. There's form, and the opposite of form is emptiness. So the Heart Sutra goes to tell us, actually, form is exactly emptiness, and emptiness is exactly form. It tries to warn us, don't make separate things out of these understandings, understandings of form and emptiness. If we do, then we've just made another concepts, another set of concepts. And our, our 
practice of entering into our lives is actually diminished because then we're just entering into our concepts of what's going on. So this idea about emptiness, we have to figure out um, how is it that we actually practice with that wisdom? It's not a familiar idea to us. And that actually is a key to how we should practice with it. Because uh, really, the way we should practice with the understanding of emptiness is to recognize that all these things that are familiar are not really familiar. In essence, they go beyond our, our possibility of conceiving of them. Our great ancestor Dogen, uh, 13th century Japan, he said, uh, we should study and practice with all things the way we study emptiness. Meaning, we should approach all things as if we, we know in our bones that it goes beyond our understanding. It goes beyond our typical ideas about it. It's much bigger, much broader than that. One of the good things about this teaching is it kind of encourages us to, rem to relate to the things that are familiar, that seem limited to us, in a way that restores their true boundarylessness. That appreciates how everything is connected to everything else. interesting because if we appreciate the emptiness of each other, of everything, one of the things we realize is that grasping something is just impossible. How do you grasp something that is so vast that the whole universe is manifesting in it? And so fluid that it's changing at every moment. It can't be grasped. So the understanding of emptiness is kind of an understanding that helps us let go of our greediness, let go of our tendency to, to grasp onto things. And to recognize, really, that in reality, everything is unlimited. teaching of emptiness should be a teaching that helps us hold our normal concepts of things lightly, to recognize there's more. One of my early teachers used to say, things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. And that's the truth of form and emptiness. Yes, there are things here, you know, pieces of paper, cups, tea. And yet, if we just take everything as what it seems to be, we miss the true nature of everything. So our practice should be one of how do we go beyond our, our limiting concepts. 
there were a couple of monks in China who were talking. One's name was Shigong, and the other was um, Chitang. So Shigong went up to Jitang and he said, Do you know how to grasp space? But so the word in Chinese is ku for space. Also, same word as emptiness. Right? Same word as sky. So space, sky, and emptiness all discussed with the same word. So, Shigang uh, asked Shitang, do you know how to grasp space, how to grasp emptiness, we could say? Shitang said, yes, I do. Qigong says, how do you grasp it? And he made kind of these kind of motions. Qigong you know, says, you don't know how to grasp space. And Qigong responded, well, how do you grasp it, elder brother? And Qigong poked his finger in Jitang's nostril, and he pulled. And Jitang grunted in pain and he said, You're killing me! You're pulling my nose off! Jigong says, Now you can grasp the space. So, okay. Kind of tough love, wouldn't you say? You know? <laughs> but it's an interesting uh, dialogue. Clearly, Jitang is you know, going about responding to the question as if it was a normal question, how do you grasp space? He makes grasping motions with his hands, right? But uh, in response to that, when asked, well, how do you grasp it, the brother? Uh, Shigong says, uh, Shigong grasps his nostril. It pulls on his nose. As if to say, if you really want to know how to grasp emptiness, how to understand emptiness, you have to understand it through form. Right? Yes, there's, you know, there's a space in his nostril that he puts his finger in. But really, what he shows his, his younger uh, monastic brother is, um, if you want to understand emptiness, you can't separate from the world of form. In fact, the world of form is what will reveal emptiness to you. Dogen has a comment on this. He says, uh, he thought he had met another person. But right there, he actually met himself. At this moment, Isolating himself was not possible. And this is how you should study yourself. Jitang finds emptiness by finding himself, by finding you know, the sensation in his own nostril. So, Tolkien says, this is how you should study yourself. You should recognize that the way you experience yourself 
is through the interaction of everything else. Dogen says, experiencing yourself is exactly the same as experiencing another person. The monk, Sri Tang, he was stuck in his familiar idea of emptiness, of space. And his elder brother, Sri Gong, tried to help him get out. And so it's kind of startling the way these monks interacted with each other. But we need to be startled sometimes because otherwise we will relate to everything in our lives automatically, habitually. And when we do that, our lives become really dull and really narrow. Our practice should actually be the practice of no automaticity. Nothing should be habitual and automatic. Our practice should be the, the practice of encountering our whole lives freshly in every moment. And also, our practice should be one of recognizing the way in which we diminish and we distort our lives with our concepts and our ideas and our habits. And our practice should be one of restoring our immediacy, our intimate contact with everything, our meeting with things just as they are. This is not the easiest thing to do because things as they are are not necessarily pleasant. <laughs> you may have noticed this in your life. Things as they are you know, we have feelings about them, and often those feelings are, I don't like this. And encountering our lives with immediacy means actually dropping our protections against those things that we don't like, and being open to being affected by them. The way um, Shi uh, uh, Tang was affected by Shi Gong's finger in his nostril. One of the ways we could talk about our practice is that it's actually leaning in to the things that we would normally avoid. Because if we don't lean into the things that we would avoid, then we're really going to try to live in, in a purified world in which there's only good things and only things that we like. And, of course, we might get away with that for a little while. But we won't get away with it. People we love will pass away. Things that we wish we could hold on to will change. There's no way to really merge, we say merge with suchness, to really uh, be fully in contact with our lives and fully live our, live our lives. Other than to not allow ourselves to be pushed around by our likes and dislikes. If we allow ourselves to be driven by, I like this, I don't like that, then we will really limit our world and, and diminish it, and diminish ourselves. 
Buddha had a, a, an interesting approach to uh, dealing with the things that he thought he knew. He actually had a very experimental approach to practice. You know, for, for years he, he practiced in a very uh, severe ascetic way, right? And he could see that this really was not leading to awakening. But he wanted to try everything, so he, he took this experimental approach. Well, suppose I try this. Suppose I try that. Suppose I try a meditation in which I stop breathing, he said to himself at one point. And he tried it. didn't work all that well. <laughs> Suppose I try to stop eating, he said at one point. And he tried it. And he just, you know, kind of entered into the world in that way. Kind of challenging all of his assumptions about what does a person need? What would lead to awakening? He didn't know, so he would try all these things. And when he said, uh, suppose I st try to stop eating, said that the gods appeared to him and they said, we, we won't let you do that. If you stop eating, we will infuse nourishment through your pores while you sleep. <laughs> and we'll keep you alive that way. And Buddha said, well, I can't say to people that I'm an ascetic who stopped eating if the gods are infusing nourishment into my body, so okay, I won't, I won't take this path of stopping to eat. And you know, he tried all kinds of things in this very, let's see what happens, in this very uh, uh, open way. Eventually, uh, he remembered a time in his childhood in which he had actually kind of accidentally fallen into Zazen. And he said, let me try that. <laughs> and that worked pretty well. <laughs> Since we're all here, we know it worked pretty well. <laughs> but it's an interesting way to go, to go about our lives. Suppose I try this. Does this lead to waking up? Suppose I try that. Does that lead to waking up? Not being caught in our habits, but really opening up. If you want to be uh, really as present as possible, I have a suggestion for a practice. The next time you're going to take a walk, take a minute and kind of resolve to yourself, I'm going to take this walk as if I had just recovered from a serious illness, just recovered enough to go out. And take a walk with that attitude. And what do you think is going to happen on that walk? If you really go out into the world with that attitude, you're go out, going to go out into the world with gratitude for every experience. The sunshine will really seem bright. Right? The breeze will really feel cool. If we go into the world kind of ripping away our normal assumptions and our normal ways of doing things and we take it as wow I'm getting to have something that I wasn't even sure I would ever have again I know we will wake up to it more than we do and then if we say okay I'll, I'm gonna go up to the store and I know the way so I don't even have to pay attention our practice should be this kind of process of opening up It's not always that way, just because we like to feel good and we don't like to feel bad. So sometimes, even in our practice, we're kind of trying to eliminate the things we don't like. 
there's a practice that I'm sure we've all tried at one point or another. I call it lifeboat breathing. And that is, you know, we're in some difficult situation that we, d we, we can hardly deal with, and we decide, I'm just going to pay attention to my breath. I'm not going to pay attention to anything else. I'm just going to pay attention to our breath. And actually, if we do that, we'll probably calm down. Because if we just bring our attention to something that's real, right here and now, then we'll stop imagining all the terrible things that could happen, right? But, but it's a restrictive practice. It's, it's, that's why I call it lifeboat breathing. We'll turn to it, you know, because we're really in trouble and we need something to help us. But that can't be what our practice is about. Our, can't, our practice can't be simply one of how do we get through the bad times. Practice has to be one of how do we enter fully into everything, including the bad times. So we should notice in our practice, am I practicing to open to all things? Or am I practicing in some way to avoid some things? Sometimes if we can't stand the thoughts that are going on in our mind, we might engage in some other practice like bowing, in which we don't have to think about anything. We can be distracted from our thoughts. And yet, we'll notice that this is a practice of restriction rather than a practice of opening up. And we might say to ourselves, like Buddha did, Suppose I open up, then what? This time of year, in American Zen, sometimes we uh, to a ceremony uh, to invite the hungry ghosts to join us. Do people know about this, the hungry ghosts? Some people do, some people don't. So it was said that there are different classes of beings. Right? One class was called the hungry ghosts. And these beings uh, were said to be insatiable. They could never be satisfied. Sometimes in depiction, depicting them, they're depicted with enormous bellies and really tiny mouths. As if you could never bring enough in through a mouth that small to, to satisfy a belly that big. Right. And hungry ghosts were, you know, kind of a reality in ancient Buddhist times. And were kind of a way of uh, um, symbolizing, you know, the, the intensity of our own greed, of our own grasping. And in America, around Halloween, you know, we sometimes do this ceremony recognizing the hungry ghosts. Hungry ghosts are really just projections of our own, of our own greed, or of our own inability to be satisfied with anything. But we do this ceremony in which we call on the hungry ghost and we say, come here. And on the altar we'll put out food on the altar. You know? we'll say, come here. Come 
satisfy yourselves, enjoy yourselves. We say, you're perfectly safe with us. We welcome you. And in this ceremony is a really good uh, model for our practice. Even those things that we would like to get rid of, like, you know, our insatiable greed, we might say, come here, show up on my cushion with me. I welcome you. Maybe our anger, we say, come here, show up on my cushion. I want to open up to you. So this is the practice of opening up, to welcome those things that we would normally disavow. We can develop, actually, a compassionate interest in the things that we've excluded from our life. And that will help us to have our whole life. This practice is, if we notice there's some experience we don't want to have, can we lean into it? Can we open up to it? Mary and I have gone to a number of concerts recently. It's great. It's wonderful to be exposed to the great musical culture. But there's this thing about going to concerts. Most concerts have a lot of old people at them. I don't know if you've noticed this. If you go to the opera, there's kind of a lot of old people in the audience. If you go to the symphony, it's kind of a lot of old people. Which is fine, it's great, it's wonderful. Until it's intermission. And you really need to use the restroom. And you're getting out into the aisle, and in front of you is you know, like, you know, an aisle full of people in their 80s. And they're, you know, walking slow. <laughs> and they're taking up a lot of room. And you can't get past them. <laughs> so we've been going to concerts and, and I've been exposed to this experience time and time again. Which is, I have to confess, I get like a little frustrated and a little irritated. Kind of like, get out of my way feeling, you know, comes up in me. Um, and at one point, I recognized, you know, this is kind of ruining the concert for me to have, you know, these intermissions in which I'm kind of consumed with unpleasant feelings <laughs> towards old people. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible, right? Uh, so I said to myself, what if I leaned into this experience instead of trying to push it away? You know, all it took was, I had to be willing to walk a little slower. <laughs> That's all. That's all. And, and once I found a willingness to walk a little slower, then these people weren't impediments, right? In fact, they were inspiring to me. People even older than I, going to concerts, enjoying it, and yeah, okay, they were kind of challenged in how they moved around. But it, you know, it gave me some thought that, gee, maybe when I'm that age and, and walking that way, maybe I'll still be able to go to concerts and still have that in my life. And I realized that you know, the irritation I felt was kind of pushing something away. And that was, I really didn't want to think of myself as being challenged in that way, as being unable to move, you know, vigorously, the way I still can. 
didn't want to think of myself as getting old and losing some of the capacity that I have now. And so I realized that part of my irritation at this geriatric population and at the symphony was, that's me. <laughs> I'm going to be exactly like them, and I don't want to. <laughs> right? I'd rather not change that way. I'd rather not be impermanent. And so my irritation at, at these guys, you know, was kind of a way of not facing what was inevitable in my life. If I'm lucky, right, that would be great. That would be a pretty good outcome to be still able to go to concerts. Some people don't have that outcome, right? So I, I said to myself, you know, maybe I'll try to have the practice of leaning into my aversions, leaning into the things that I really want to get rid of. And I started practicing with other things too, and I noticed this is a very difficult practice because we are so programmed to avoid the things that we don't like that it's even hard to remember that I'm trying not to avoid the things that we don't like. Right? So I recommend this practice to everybody just to see how much energy you put into avoiding the things you don't like. If you just set yourself the goal of opening up to the things you don't, you don't like, you'll notice how that goal just leaves your mind immediately and you find yourself caught up in your normal habits of avoiding the things you don't like. And you'll find, I think, that this is not what practice is about, to avoid the things we don't like. Practice does not remove us from any part of our lives. Practice helps us in enter into every part of our helps us move fully into our lives. It's really the first precept. First precept is disciple of Buddha does not kill. And there's a way in which, when we try to refine our lives so we have our pleasures but none of our pains, right? we're really killing half our lives. Right? Disciple of Buddha tries not to do that, tries to avoid doing that, which means is willing to open up to all the aspects of life. So a couple of guys here sat Sashin this past weekend. Sometimes did your legs hurt? Oh. <laughs> I, a, I felt like I hit a wall Saturday night. You did, yeah. yeah. Saturday night is the time to do it, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like right after dinner, and it's, I just I did what you said. I leaned into it and just sort of yeah. kept going. You just try have to be there with it. Yeah. So those, yeah. In the sashin, in the Saturday practice in sashin, you've been practicing all day. You have supper, you get a little break, and then you go back and practice some more. And those last two periods can be really tough, right? Your body has just been through it. Right? But it's a good practice to do that, isn't it? Because, because it, it shows us we don't have to run away from the things that, you know, are kind of unpleasant. 
we can actually be with them. And that being with them helps us to open up to our lives. Let me pause here and ask uh, comments and questions. So from past conceptions of what Zen and Buddha is like, it, for a beginner or someone from the outside, it may seem that the Buddha is all positive and life qualities, such as kindness and compassion. But it seems to, when you're saying you want to go into, lean into the things that you want to avoid, it may seem that in the path of Zen, there may be certain dark or negative traits of yourself that you want to embrace? Sure. That at least you want to confront, at least you want to notice and meet them. Yes, I am saying that. It's not um, contradictory to the idea that Buddha's path is one of kindness and compassion. Because in order to meet, you know, our anger or our irritation at geriatric people, you know, we have to have a certain amount of kindness and compassion for ourselves, right? You know, I would rather not be a person who got irritated at people who have moved too slow, right? But there it is. It shows up. So we need that kindness and that compassion in order to have, have the strength, have the courage to enter into our lives fully and even encounter the aspects of ourselves that, you know, we wish we didn't. Along the same lines, I think it's like it's easier to like be on the path if you're working with all the information, right? If we're not like, sort of saying, I don't want to see this, I don't want to look at that. Yeah. If we could sort of open up to the bigger picture and, and be able to observe it and approach it with like kindness and compassion, yeah. uh, then we're better able to stay on the path. Um, versus trying to ignore it, we're kind of swerving all over and going all over the place, but I think we can stay consistent, like not stay in that place where you're like getting agitated yeah. with other people or whatever I like what you're saying it's easier to stay on the path if you're not having to swerve left and right all the time to avoid something that you don't like yeah. right? it's hard to stay on the road when you have to do that you know you're you're a hazard to all the traffic yes. <laughs> in fact that's when we're a hazard to each other really when we're trying to avoid some experience that we don't like. Because at that point, you know, you might push the older person in front of you so you'd get out of your way, right? <laughs> right. Or do something you really wish you wouldn't do. Yeah. Other comments or thoughts? Good, thanks for participating. <laughs>